I've been so excited to share this message with you today. Um, this is such a wonderful, brilliant, full of joy passage for us to be able to consider today. Um, so, uh, yeah, very excited. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are 100% dependent on you, Lord, for understanding it, that, that you would quicken it to our hearts, that we would understand and apply, and that, that our hearts and our eyes would be lifted up to glory in you, Lord, to praise you, to desire you. So Lord, we pray that, um, that through your word here today, that you would speak to us. Help me to speak clearly, Lord, and, and we ask that Christ, his name, would be honored and lifted high. Lord, we pray you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This and the verses that follow it and in several other places are what is known by Jews as the Shema. For Jewish people, this is one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known, read, recited, and spoken verses of all time. The rabbis taught that this was to be prayed through every morning and every evening as a declaration of their faith and a prayer of devotion. And the word Shema is actually quite simply the word in Hebrew for hear, to listen. Hear, at Shema, O Israel. And it's a pretty important one too. Jesus says that out of every commandment that is written in the law, this command specifically, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, is the greatest. This one is the most important. So therefore, indeed, let us hear. Today, we'll look at this passage in three areas. Firstly, the receiver of this love, the reach of this love, and then the reality of this love. So firstly, the receiver is this love. Who is the God that we are called to love? Verse 4 says, the Lord in capitals. This is the personal name of God, Yahweh. I will be, or I am who I am, is what it means. This is the one who was before the beginning of time, the one who is now, and the one who will still be after an eternity of years into the future. This is the name that God gave to Moses, and he has given to us when, when he spoke to Moses many, many years ago. And Moses says, I'm going to the people, but who shall I tell them that sent me? And God says, tell them I am who I am, has sent you. He is a personal God. He is identifiable by name. And he has revealed to us of his eternal nature by his name. This is the God that we are reading of here. He is the one who is giving these laws. I mean, verse 1 in this chapter that we looked at last week says, The Lord, the Lord specifically commanded Moses, teach these commands to the Israelites. So attention, attention, God is speaking. 
let us hear. What else do we learn? Well, it says the Lord is one. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is one? Romans 3, it says this. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Paul is explaining how to be justified before God. He's speaking about how sinners can be made right before him, that this is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But he knows a problem. Only the Jews had the law. The Gentiles, they weren't living by it. They didn't have this law. So are Gentiles discounted from being able to be saved? He says, no, salvation comes from the Lord, and this God, this Lord, is God of Jews and Gentiles. Whomever comes to him in faith, in the right way, the way the Lord has called them, may receive salvation. Because God is the God of all peoples. He is not multiple gods. There is not a separate God over Jews and a separate God over Gentiles. And neither is there a separate God over Australians and Americans or over Muslims and Buddhists. Yahweh is the one Lord of all the earth. He is the one and only God over all these nations and people groups. He is the one and only God over all of creation. It may be said this passage the Lord our God is one Lord. Far from the multiplicity of gods that the Canaanites had around the Israelites at this time with their worship of the Baals and the Ashtaroth and many others, there is one God, Moses says. So to those who now are Hindu, who have created in their minds tens of thousands of gods, or none of them are gods, they're pieces of wood and rocks that they have shaped into the likeness of themselves. Yahweh is God. Yahweh, the Christian God, is the only God in all of creation. He is still God even to those who do not believe that he is God. Over those who hold to Islam, who have created a God that they call Allah, Allah is not God, only Yahweh is God. And we still hold to this as Christians. Though since, since Jesus, we have this more, you know, more fuller understanding that this one God is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is still one God. And this is who we worship. And if you look in the text, what else does it say? It says that he is our God, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. We are not like these other nations who have made up all of these false gods in their minds. We serve Yahweh alone. He is the one who controls the wind and the rain, who provides for us, who has raised us up until now. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and as Moses says, he alone is our God, and we look to him. There is none other that we serve, and there is none other that exists. 
This of course raises some questions. It's a mighty bold claim to say that the Christian God is the only God and that all other gods are false and not gods. But what this word says is true. And so we trust and proclaim it. If one thinks on the question, he might ask, then how? How might others come to salvation if they believe in these false gods? Well, unless they look to the Lord, the only true God, they can't. Recall the passage we read in Romans. He is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, that is, the Jews and the non-Jews. If any other person from another nation wants to be saved, wants to be made right, wants to know God, they must look to Yahweh for their salvation. And this very salvation that the Israelites have is what enables Moses to say that Yahweh is their God. For Yahweh is the one who has brought them salvation and who brings it still. So he is their God in a greater way, a way of obedience and knowing him in such a way that the other nations do not say that Yahweh is their God, even though God is God over the other nations. Yahweh is still God, whether they acknowledge him or not. And it is now expressed in, in the way that these Israelites are living. It is the same for us as well. We who call the Lord God. God has had mercy on us to bring our hearts out of our depravity, where we too were once darkened, and whether we knew it or, lot, or, knew it or not, we were living at enmity against him. This is what it is to be able to say, our God, to be able to say, we are one of the people of the Lord. It is to be a people called out of their sin to know the goodness and love of Yahweh. In the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, know therefore that the Lord your God is a faithful God. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Those who know him are God's chosen people, called out from dwelling in their sin and making idols out of things like every other nation does and still does today. Even in our Western culture, we make idols out of things. And so there is a very specific love that God has given to us to have called us out of our sin to have taught us to keep his commandments. And this is what it is to be one of his people, to love him and keep his commandments. Our God has a very great and deep love for his people, a special, specific love to his people that those who are not his people do not receive. We'll look at this love now. And it's important that we do so, important that we understand the love that God has given us because... It says elsewhere in Scripture that we love because God first loved us. So we must understand the love that God has loved us with if we are understand, to understand how we are to love. So how is it that Yahweh has loved us? Romans 5 verse 8 says this, 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were against God, while our sin separated us from an eternally perfect and holy God, nothing that we could do is that we hated him. Perhaps we thought we loved him in our minds, but we weren't obedient to him. We weren't doing that in practice. And yet God, who as a just God, had every right to punish us in that, to bring his wrath on us, to say, for your sin, it deserves death. It deserves an eternity of punishment because I'm an infinitely holy and perfect and righteous and just God. Yet he's full of mercy as well to say, yet you are my image bearer and I love you and I don't want you to be lost. So I myself, I myself will come in Jesus Christ to die for you, to take the punishment that your sin deserves. And if I take the punishment for your sin, then I am able to free you from that penalty because the debt's been paid. Because my son, Jesus, he'll take that punishment. He'll raise from the dead. So if you believe in him, then I forgive you because I love you. I have mercy on you and I can be just because my son has taken the punishment. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul later prays. He says, I pray that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is the specific love that God has given only to those who believe. That he has called them out of their sin. That he has forgiven them. That he has granted them mercy. That he has put his Holy Spirit in them. That they may live a life of praise and knowing him. Filled with joy to delight in the goodness of their God who saved them. The scriptures say that his kindness leads us to repentance. If you are ever doubtful that God loves you, remember the cross. For this is how, how and where God demonstrated his love to us. So this is the God. This is who. This is the receiver of our love. The next is the reach of this love. How is it that we're called to love him? To what, to what in our life does this, should this love reach? How much of our life does this love extend to? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's an interesting thing to be commanded to love. I think that um, due, due to the, ultimately due to the corruption in, in the world because of sin, we're generally resistant to this command. I can command you to love. 
we don't really want to be commanded to love. And so I want to take a moment to, if necessary, try to convince you that this command is actually a good and wonderful and freeing command for us and not something that we need to resist. Because the command that we're called to do is, is, is not as though we can simply do it, right, and check it off the list as though it were a duty or obligation. Yep, done my chores for the day, I loved God. It's not the kind of love we're called to do. It's, it's Perhaps it's not love at all. We are commanded here to love God, but, but not, 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 to, not commanded to love him in such a way as it's a burden for us, a, a thing that we have to do to check off. Because if we did, then love could be done by pure obligation. But if it's done by obligation, it's not love at all, because love necessarily involves some measure of delight in the person we're loving. We're not commanded to, quote-unquote, love God because you have to, even though you're going to do it through grumbling and gritted teeth. That's not love. You can tell when someone is serving you out of obligation versus because they love you. So then, if that's not what we're called to, if that's not the command... If instead we're called to a, a true form of love, then what exactly is that love? Well, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We have already seen this in God, haven't we? That God has demonstrated this very love to us by dying in our place. So I think we learn here the first part of the nature of this love that it's the honoring of the other person so as to even lay down your life for them but let's consider the nature of love more before we look at that god's love is not a needy love as though we are commanded love god because he is needy you know god is perfectly happy and content without anything that we could offer. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What could he possibly need from us? No, actually, we hold that God has done all that he has done for his people, all of this love, out of a resolve to exalt his own glory, which here is demonstrated in his love for his people. And so then we know that if every command God gives, he does for his own glory. Could it possibly be that this command, especially done to us, his people, is for our good? And if so, then what is the love that we're called to have in return? John Piper gives this analogy of this true nature of love speaks about a husband presenting his wife with a bunch of roses. And he says, Which scenario honours her and demonstrates my love towards her? Is it the first one where the husband says, I give you these roses because as your husband, it is my duty to buy you roses? Is that love? Or is it when he says this, I give you these roses because I love you and I delight in you. It's my wife. 
clearly it's not love in the first presentation because he's doing it because he has to. I have to give these roses. If I didn't have to give you them, I wouldn't. <laughs> That's not love. It's the second one. I'm giving you these because I delight in you. I love you. I want to present you with a gift. Allow me to buy you and bless you with these roses. And so if we are then commanded to love the Lord, what we're commanded to have is an indwelling, overflowing delight in God that expresses itself in action, which is love. And what a person, like what person anywhere would say that having an overflowing delight expressing itself through action, is, and, which is love, who would say that's a bad thing? Who would say, oh, what a burden it is for me to be filled with so much delight that I love you? <laughs> we don't. This is a wonderful thing. No one would say that. So, in fact, this is ultimately what we're commanded to have here. We are commanded to be so full of delight and joy in the Lord that it explodes into every part of our life. Be as happy in the Lord as you possibly can. Because the consummation of happiness and delight is to express that through some action, which is love. This is a wonderful thing we're commanded to do. And if, as has been said, the, in the presence of the Lord, it, so it, it, in the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy, then we are commanded and commended to the very best thing for us that there could ever be. What other command in this world? What other command in this world says, be filled with love for the one and only thing in all of existence that can fill you with infinite overflowing delight? None other. But this command is exactly what we are commanded and commanded to here. And so to answer my question from before, indeed, this is a command which is given to us for our good. Hear this from Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. This is a combination of what we looked at last week, living in obedience to his commands, and this week, loving him with all that we are, obedient to his commands in our love for him, filled with delight. This is all for our good, and it honors him and it glorifies him. And so now I will try to show that where the reach of this love that we are called to extends to every single part of our lives. In the past, I have told you that I don't speak Hebrew or Greek. And whilst that is true, I've put a bit of extra research in this week so that I can share some particularly important words with you from this passage. The first way that we are told to love the Lord our God is with all our heart. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
So what is meant by heart? Well, to understand that, we need to understand something else. And that is that in ancient Hebrew, there is no word for brain. In our modern thought, which is predominantly influenced by Greek philosophy, we attribute the thinking, the decisions, the will to the brain, to our mind. But not if you were an Israelite. In Hebrew, the place that they assumed intellectual activity to happen was what they called lev or levav, which in Septuagint was translated as cardia, from which we get cardiac, and so we understand that it's translated for us as heart. But when they used this word, they weren't referring to a muscle that pumps blood around your body as we know it today. One scholar in the journal Biblica summarizes his conclusion to this. He says, the common man's interpretation of Lev was a vaguely known or even confused jumble of organs somewhere in the area of the heart or stomach and very important for the functioning of what we today call the brain and the nervous system. So why does this matter? What he's saying is that the common Hebrew person understood as the location of, of what's going on within us, our thinking, our reflections, our desires, our reasons, our will, our conscience, all these things were understood by the Israelites to be the operation of the heart. Here are some examples. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Your heart had desires. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In the heart you plan. Psalm 51 verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ezekiel 36 verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The heart was something that could be corrupt with evil and which the Lord could renew and make new. So then with that understanding of the heart, what is this passage calling us to? What it's saying is that we're to devote and commit and bring into obedience and offer every thought, every plan, every desire, every bit of reason to the Lord in love. We live so as to let our inner person and all our ways love the Lord our God. Okay, next word. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now again, what they understood by the word soul was probably a bit further from what we think of. Our modern understanding of this word is heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. We think of, of the soul as the kind of leftover thing that you, take, that you get when you take our body away from who we are. There's like this separation of our flesh and the kind of spirit part of who we are. But although we do talk of this in, 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 at times, this is not the Hebrew understanding of the word that's being used here for soul. 
the word that is act like often actually used to refer to kind of the spirit, our spirit, is ruach. For example, in Genesis, it says the spirit of God, the ruach, was hovering over the waters. The same word is used to describe the spirit of man at other points. But this is not what is meant by the word soul. The word soul here in Deuteronomy is the word nefesh. And it's much less spiritual than you might think. Here are some other examples of how nefesh is used. Genesis 1.30 And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Something that has the breath of life. Genesis 2.7 Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. A creature. These are the son, uh, Genesis 46.22 These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. Fourteen persons in all. Persons. Joshua 2.13, speaking with Rahab, saying, you know, help us and, and, and you won't also die with the rest of the city. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Our lives. And Psalm 119, my last one. I hold my life, my life, continually in my hand, but I do not forget your law. Breath of life, creature, person, life, lives. The root of this word is nafash. This word is nefesh. Now, nefesh means to breathe. And so what nefesh means is this breathing creature. It's actually used to describe the whole of it. And that's why it can be referred to in Genesis as the other creatures as well. God breathes into Adam. Adam becomes a breathing creature. Breath goes in. Adam becomes alive. Adam is a living nefesh. In Numbers, it talks of people who had become spiritually unclean by touching a dead body. A dead nefesh says in these verses deliver our lives from death my life so when it's talking about soul our nefesh it's talking about the whole of us it is the whole of our person right to the depth of who and what we are as a person like i said you know we're very influenced by the greeks with the separation of physical and spirit but it wasn't so for the hebrews for them these things body and soul they're not in opposition but they they come as a package so when you read a soul in the future, don't just imagine the spiritual part of you, but understand that it's everything you are as a living, breathing person. When we read soul, we understand it's, it's the depth of who we are as a breathing creature that God has made. So what then does this have to do with our call to love the Lord? Well, if loving the Lord with our heart meant loving him with the way that we think and desire and plan, then loving the Lord with our very soul 
is loving the Lord with every action and movement and breath and prayer that we would ever do out of that heart. It's loving him with our whole being. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, everything that's within me. My very self, the core of who and what I am, bless and praise the Lord. So this is how we are called to love the Lord, with all of our heart and with all of our soul. What's left? Not much. Surely there's not much left that we can love the Lord with, right? But the command is greater. Well, finally, we look. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your might. The last word to look at. When we think of might, we generally think of physical strength and might or an ability, right? He was mighty in battle. But this word doesn't actually mean strength. I mean, at least not, not in that way. The, the word used here for might is ma'od. It just means very or exceedingly or much. It's an adverb. It accentuates meaning. We might say... Um, he was running very fast. God saw everything that it was made and it was very good. It was ma'od good. Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand on the sea until he ceased to measure it because it could not be measured. Very much great. Whatever this word is attached to, it's accentuating it. So what's it mean in this verse? It means you shall love the Lord your God with all of your muchness, with every capacity that you have within yourself to apply energy, effort, in as much, in as, much as you can escalate your active loving of the Lord. This is how you are to love him, with all of your veriness. Which is why we can now understand why we have the English word here for might. Because it's not merely to love the Lord our God with our physical strength. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your everything. So then indeed, to answer my earlier question, the kind of love that we are called to is to lay down our entire lives for his namesake, to give him everything. And considering the joy that we get in that and the glory that God gets in that, this is a wonderful thing that we are commanded to. So finally, my third point, the reality of this love. How can we do this? How can we grow in our zeal and love for the Lord? And what does this look like? What's this going to look like if we had to love the Lord our God with everything? Now, I've said so far that we're commanded to love, that this love is a good thing for us, and that this love begins with delight. I've said that this love expresses itself through action, resulting from our delight in God. And I've said that as we do this, as we love the Lord, we are to express this love with everything we've got, with all of our thoughts and will, with our whole person, and all the actions that we do, and with all of our energy and might. So we know then what this love is. 
and how to do it, the reach to it. So now we ask, what does it look like in action? If we're to practically love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might, what does that look like? See what Moses says in verse 6. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. Could it be that Moses is saying here, by linking these two verses immediately after one another, that this is what it is to have to love the Lord our God with all our heart, that these words are on our heart, that we would do such a thing as these to follow them, that since we love the Lord with everything, we now find that his commandments are just on our heart. That in having his commandments on our heart, this next series of activities, which he says in the next few verses, that's what our lives would result in looking like. Obedience, what we're called to here, is a huge part of our expression for love. Remember, last week we said that we've been given these commands so that we would do them and so that we would fear the Lord and so that it would go well with us. And this is what he says. In having these commands on your heart, as in not just forcing them onto your mind, but having them in your thoughts, the very things which bring you delight, all the more in the Lord as you think of them. And so he says, verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to the Lord, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is what it is to have the word of the commands of the Lord in our heart. It just gets into everywhere in our life. Can you imagine how wonderful this would be? If this very law that we delight in, the word and the revelation of our mighty and wonderful God, if we truly did, we taught it to our kids, we, we talked of it wherever we found ourselves, we made them as signs on our hands so we'd remember and always know to look to the Lord and everything. Imagine having these constant reminders through each other and by the things that we set up around us of the constant steadfast faithfulness of the Lord. If we, if we were always reminded, if we always knew, if we always remembered the commands of the Lord, that we would be filled with delight to know Him and love Him with all that we are. But see, here's what's interesting. I don't think that Moses has given the people this list only to say that this is what it will look like if you do keep God's commands on your heart. I think that this is what it will look like, but not only the reason he's given it. See how the command to love the Lord is immediately put after Moses tells of the reasons for giving the entire law, which we looked at last week. It's as though Moses is saying, I'm giving you this entire law and by it and in it and because of it and as you meditate on it and as you're obedient to it, this will enable you to love the Lord. These are commands, remember. He says to them, you shall do these things. In Moses giving these directions, he's also explaining to the Israelites how they can keep God's law in their hearts. These actions are not just evidence of God's word being on their hearts, but they are the enabler of God's law being on their hearts. And so by doing these things, by talking about God's commands, 
by teaching them to each other, by using them to direct our actions. If we do these things in our lives practically, then God will truly have them dwell on our heart. Here's an example of this. Well, I was at Cape and Ray a few years ago. We lived in dorms, a couple of people in each. And one of the guys there, his name was Toby. And Toby would wake up every morning to the fellas in his dorm. And he would say, fellas, today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Every morning. The command in Deuteronomy, talk of them when you rise. I don't know if he was doing it because he read this command or if he was doing it because it was just spontaneously overflowing in him. But either way, what was the end of that? It was on our hearts. When we woke up in the morning, knowing that Toby was telling his, his fellows in his dorm, I was thinking, today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Essentially, what this passage is calling us to do with these actions is to be and come to the sweet and simplicity of abiding in Christ, of not departing from his word, of always being plugged into the vine so that his life will flow through us in every circumstance. So not only will these commands result in the abiding of us in the word, but by doing them, they will help us to abide in the word. Now, I want to visit something very briefly. If you hear these words that the Lord has given us, that I'm passing on to you today, and your response is to say, are you serious? All the time? You want me to be talking about the word when I'm sitting at my house and when I'm walking by the way and when I lie down and when I rise? Are you serious? If this is your reaction, what you are saying is that it would be a burden for me to abide in Christ. I don't want his word to be forthright in my life like that. It would be a fearful thing, but if this is the case for you, hear the words of Jesus. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So if so, seek out the good words of the Lord. Eagerly desire that the Lord will grant you repentance that leads to true life in his name. His mercy is always available to those who call on him if we ever find that our hearts have become cold towards his commands. His mercy is always greater. We can always come to him. However, if you read these words and rejoice at the thought of God's word being so esteemed in your life and your whole heart being filled with love for him, then take a look at what Jesus says just after, just after that verse. He says, if you abide in me and my words in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. These are marvelous truths. Abide in Christ. 
Let his word abide in you. Know the Father's love. Abide in Christ's love and know that anything you ask will be given to you. And what would we ask? What would be the cry of our hearts from this message today? That we would grow in our love for God. That we would delight in his law. That we would erupt in joy to follow him and to love him with all that we are. 1 John 5 verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. These are a joy to us, not a burden. Why? Why aren't they a burden? Because as we gaze on the beauty of the Lord and we see his deep love for us, we delight in them. Psalm 119, 14, 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I could have everything in the world. I delight in your word just as much more if in the presence of the lord truly is the fullness of joy and if by teaching these commands we may come to fear him and know him and love him could there possibly be any greater thing for us than to abide in and cherish his word so please my friends help me Tell me of the love of the Lord. Seriously, remind me of it. Text me. Tell me when you see me. Tell me how good he is and and he is filled with steadfast love. Tell me he's righteous and just and how one day he will return to make all things new and to bring everything to work out justly and rightly for his glory. These are wonderful reminders. Remind me of them. And, and I would I would endeavor to remind you of them as well, that we all may come to a more fully and consistently delight in his word, that we'd be able to do that together. So then finally, where does that joy come from? How are we going to get this? Psalm 40 verse 8 says this, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In our response of love to the Lord, we bring God's law into our hearts by reminding ourselves of it, by encouraging one another in it. And as we store up God's love within our hearts, we will come to delight to do His will. And as we come to delight to do His will, then our, His commands won't be burdensome, but rather the obedience to which we're called to the law will become a delight for us and will obey the command to love the Lord our God. With all of our hearts, we'll be filled with joy and his name will be exalted. And praise the Lord, in times of cold and apathetic hearts, which I know too well, we are able to bring our lack of joy to the Lord and he is kind to receive us and heal our hearts anew. And as we remember his word, we can trust the quickening of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts working through the word of God and to have God himself write his law in our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. As we obediently respond to this call to love the Lord, 
with our hearts and our entire lives as we strive to do all we can to bring the commands before him that we may remember them and delight in him God himself will establish his law in our hearts and we'll grow in love for him so let me ask you how might you practically move to abide more in the words and commands of our Lord do you live with people who you can share what you're reading in the scriptures and hear encouraging words of what they're reading can you place a scripture in a place in your house or in a room or a car or a diary that'll remind you of the Lord's faithfulness? If you notice a pattern of sin in your life, can you bring a scripture to that, that physical place so that you'll remember the Lord in times of temptation? Can you love the Lord with all your heart? That is, your thinking by devoting extra time to rigorously applying your mind to studying the scriptures, loving the Lord with all of your heart. Can you be intentional about the kinds of music you listen to or the television you watch to bring the sweet truths of the Lord in instead of, in many cases, the trivial pursuits of the world? Can you remember to remind your friends and your family to take heart for Jesus is coming soon? Let's be practical about this. The pursuit of loving the Lord with all that we are is by far going to be the greatest and the most exciting and joyful expedition that we'll ever be on. So let's press towards it. Let me pray. Father, we lift all these things to you and ask that you will truly write your law in our hearts, that we will delight in it, Lord, that you would be given much, much glory. Lord, do this. Quicken these words to our, to our lives so that we would erupt in joy to know you and to press on and to be obedient to this command to love you with all that we are. Here, O city, reach South Tuggeranong. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that the Lord has commanded us today, may they be on our hearts and may we give him everything and love him with our entire lives. For his name's sake, amen.